0: The Enneacast is sponsored in part by Your Enneagram Coach. Did you know you can learn how to walk people through the Enneagram and see their lives transform? All from the comfort of your own home while also making an excellent income. Find out how by going to yourenneagramcoach.com slash BEC. There you can become a certified coach and help others discover just who it is God made them to be. Again, that's yourenneagramcoach.com slash BEC.
1: We don't know how much of the Enneagram comes from occultist roots, um, but let's just ask the question. So if some of the Enneagram's origins do have occultist roots, should this fact alone be enough for Christians to stop using the Enneagram? Uh, That's a good question. question.
2: (laughs) (laughs) This is a show about self-discovery.
1: About understanding ourselves. About looking into the mirror to see the good. The bad. And the unknown of who we are.
2: This is about how we relate to God and
0: everyone else from Love Thy Neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Ennea Cast.
3: Hey, welcome to the Enneacast. I am Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Sam Stevenson. Every episode, we walk you through the Enneagram, and today is the season three finale.
2: Yeah, it's crazy. We're already here
3: yeah it's been a, a good season so uh today we're going to talk about should Christians use the enneagram that is a question that comes up all the time and understandably so we are called to to weigh truth we're called to discernment we're called to biblical faithfulness and so understandably when this random thing shows up in our Facebook feed that looks like a pentagram uh we have questions
2: right and if you're a fan of the show and, and a fan of the Enneagram you've been listening but you have friends or family members that are skeptical, we hope that this episode will be a great resource um, for that particular audience, because we're really going to dive into some of the the unknown origins and the, you know, the spiritual language that's used in the Enneagram, and we really want to get to kind of the bottom of, of where this tool came from and how we can best utilize it in our Christian walk.
3: Yeah, so if you're somebody that has had a lot of questions about the Enneagram and about whether or not it's something that's acceptable and healthy and godly to use— our hope is that this this episode will be for you. So uh, Sam and I don't wanna have this conversation on our own. We can't. <laughs> <laughs> we can't. Uh, so we've actually brought in an outside special guest. So Tyler Zach is with us, and Tyler is a pastor at City Light Benson Church in Omaha, Nebraska. He's a husband and a father of two adopted boys. His current project is the Gospel for Enneagram, a 40-day devotional for each Enneagram type. The first one for type three actually comes out this August. And he has done some extensive research on today's topic. Uh, he actually released a resource called Should Christians Use the Enneagram? And so we are excited to talk about this with Tyler. So welcome to the show, Tyler.
1: Hey, it's good to be with you guys. I'm excited. Thank you for the invite. I'm passionate about the gospel and the Enneagram. And uh, just thrilled to be talking about this with you guys today.
3: Well, we appreciate you giving us some time. Uh, let's let's just start here. You know, when did you first learn about the Enneagram, and what role does it play in your work or your life?
1: For sure, I first heard about it from my friend Kevin, and uh, he had been a part of a church plant here in Omaha uh, that is known for sort of having a high bar for doctrine. And uh, so, when I found out this church was using the Enneagram, it made me curious. So, I looked into it and uh, was recommended some resources. And I remember feeling like some of the language was a little strange because this was my first time, you know, looking into the Enneagram. So Adapted Self and some terms like that was I was like, okay, uh, this feels a little strange, uh, but I'll keep going here. And I was wondering, man, who else is thinking about this from a, a gospel perspective? Is there anybody out there? So I just literally typed in gospel Enneagram into YouTube. And uh, John Fouché uh, showed yeah. up. Yeah. And uh, I know that you had John on. Uh, he's an incredible guy. And so I got hooked up with him and he coached me. Uh, I became a certified Enneagram coach through him. And man, from the very beginning of looking into the Enneagram, it's been so helpful to become more self-aware and to have more empathy towards others. I think it did a good job too, at the, in the very beginning of just affirming me and my gifts. Uh, of just just a gift of encouragement and the gift of bringing hope to people who are hopeless, uh, leading people through hard seasons. I feel like that was, was really incredible just to say, hey, keep doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it really shed light on kind of why I was having difficulty grieving uh, with, with people in my life. Um, one thing that we love to talk about is just our infertility and adoption journey, uh, just because a lot of people out there are going through the same thing. And in the early years uh, of that struggle, my wife and I were, were dealing with it in a very different way. So, so she's a six. Uh, and so she feels things. She assumes, you know, sometimes she can think the worst. And so she's crying. Uh, I have this sort of naive hope that everything is going to work out. We don't need to worry about it. We don't need to cry. We don't need to, to feel anything because God's got this and he's, he's going to work it out in the end. And so we were just grieving in, in two different ways. And the Enneagram just said, hey, you're going to struggle with feelings. And uh, and so, I, it was really helpful to, to, to see why I was taking my feelings, putting them on a bookshelf, stuffing them, not wanting to come back to them. Uh, just as Jesus wept with Lazarus' family, I needed to be uh, weeping with Lindsay. And so, you know, God did tremendous work in my life, but the Enneagram really sh- showed me why I had such a difficulty grieving yeah.
3: Well, as a as a four wing three with a wife named Lindsay, who is a six, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with, I'm with you.
2: I have a I have a question about um, just kind of your personal journey critiquing the Enneagram um, and what that was what that was like for you. And what, when did you first start to question, you know, some of the origins or the use of the Enneagram as a Christian?
1: So a ministry leader here in Omaha posted a YouTube video And so I was was interested in it, and so I I clicked on it. And as I started to listen, and they said that it had occultist roots, that it was not redeemable, uh, that just as God told the Israelites to tear down the altars in the Old Testament, that the enneagram is in this. We need to see it in the same way that we need to tear it down because it's it's really dangerous. You know, they have him and his wife had have great hearts, and we're just trying to warn people against using the enneagram. And so that really caused some. Some doubt in my heart, uh, and then I got on the Gospel Coalition website and began reading some articles by some well-known authors, and they were opposed to the enneagram, and they were warning other Christians not to use it. And so this sort of really like put some doubt <laughs> in my in my soul, and made me start to question whether or not it was it was something that I needed to to keep using or not.
3: Yeah, I'm. I'm. I've. I've read those articles, uh, and so yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm familiar with. Uh, with uh, both Joe Carter and Kevin DeYoung's articles on there. You know where they yep. have, they have questions and concerns, and and understandable. Uh, you know it. It. It's. Uh, on its surface, you know there are a lot of alarming details, and in particular, as you know, you get into some of the origins, and so we're gonna we're gonna kind of talk through some of that.
2: So I'm curious then after, um, you know, reading those articles and feeling. This doubt. How did you come to a place of feeling secure in using the enneagram and feeling kind of you know confident in in its validity?
1: You know, I want to be faithful to Jesus. (laughs) I don't want to get ten to twenty years down the road and have major regrets. I know people have told me that the enneagram is just a fad and uh, that it will it'll pass away. And additionally, I'm an elder and a pastor, and so it's my job to teach sound doctrine. That I will be judged more severely for teaching. And so I want to protect my church. I want to protect the people that I'm around from false doctrine or anything that might not be of the Lord. And so, just with the desire to be faithful to Jesus, I thought, man, let's let's research this. Let's uh, let's get into some of the Naranjo books and really do a deep dive into the history to see what comes out of that out of that search.
3: You know, so as a result of your own journey exploring whether or not Christians should use the enneagram you really distilled a lot of those concerns that Christians have into seven critical questions uh, that that Christians end up asking about the Enneagram. Tell us a little bit about that resource that you wrote and why you chose to write that.
1: I tried to take, uh, to condense down like seven critical questions that I heard people asking and that I saw sort of people wrestling with on those articles and in that video that I mentioned And so I I wrote those questions down, questions like, uh, does the Enneagram put too much focus on self? Like, does it distract us from uh, pursuing God? Does using personality categories do more harm than good? You know, just putting people in boxes, like, how can that be helpful? Uh, And then also, does the Enneagram help or hinder evangelism? Like, does it help us to get the gospel out, to win people to Jesus, or does it actually hinder that uh, because of... The, the obstacles that people see. So those are just three of the seven questions. And after answering all those, the seven questions and kind of going on that search, I became very confident that this is something that I can use as a Christian.
3: Well, I think what we need to do then is that we have two of those questions that we really want to explore because I think it's I think they're the two most common questions that many Christians have. And those have to do with the Enneagram's origins and the Enneagram's spiritual content as it relates to the Bible or maybe even contradictory to the Bible. So we're gonna explore that. We're gonna do a deep dive into the Enneagram's origins after the break. So stay with us.
0: The Enneacast is brought to you by Love Thy Neighborhood. Love Thy Neighborhood offers social justice internships supported by Christian community for young adults, just like Cameron Preston from Tennessee.
1: When I came to LTN, I was halfway through a theology degree and I was really eager to put hands and feet to the ideas uh, that I so often talked about in academic settings. And so for me, I'm able to see the Bible as extremely relevant to today's context in all contexts because I see how the Bible is speaking into and against issues of injustice and how Jesus is constantly serving and loving and elevating the marginalized.
0: Ready to see how Love Thy Neighborhood could impact your life? Learn more and apply at lovethyneighborhood.org. Hey,
3: welcome back to the Enneacast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Sam Stevenson. So we've been talking with our guest today, Tyler Zach, and we are wanting to explore the Two biggest objections that Christians have to using the Enneagram. The first thing I think we should talk about is the origins, because the origins are like shrouded in mystery. Mm -hmm. What we do know, there's a lot of unusual stuff. It gets kind of whacked out at a couple of points. I just think that we need to like right out of the gate, talk about some of those things. So Tyler, can you give us a, a brief history of the Enneagram and how we came to use it in its modern form?
1: For sure. So some enneagram authors, you know, have claimed that the roots of the enneagram can be like traced back to the desert fathers and mothers of the fourth century, and so they'll label it saying this is a Christian ancient tool. But I just feel like there's not enough clear evidence of that, just in the research that I've done, and so I think we need to be cautious about that. I do think that there's a lot of parallels uh, between, you know, ancient Christian writers and uh, some of the things in the enneagram, but. I'd be hesitant to call it a Christian tool.
3: Yeah, I think I, th- I think that the the best place I've seen it laid out recently was in uh, it's a newer book, uh, Spiritual Rhythms for the of the Enneagram, and they do the best historical tracing that I've seen on that particular topic.
2: I've heard the Desert Fathers is the origin, or that's you know the most common kind of denominator in all of the stories is fourth century Desert Fathers. You know, monks of some kind that kind of just like received these nine points or seven points at the time. I'm not sure. But yeah, it's just like we said, it's kind of vague.
1: Yeah.
3: So, so the, so your skepticism is warranted in terms of, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to pin it down.
1: For sure. For sure. The first mention of someone, you know, teaching the Enneagram was the Greek American philosopher Gurdjieff. And he's, he's a guy that didn't make any connection to it, to personality types. It was uh, Oscar Ichazo. Uh, from Bolivia that sort of took what he learned and expanded on it and tried to, to connect it to the area of personality. Claudio Naranjo from Chile, uh, he was one of Echazo's students. Uh, he said that he learned the centers or triads uh, from Ichazo. But then Naranjo, in a June 2010 interview, and you can go watch this on, on YouTube, He claimed to be the first person to connect the Enneagram to nine basic personality types, the Enneatypes that we have now. So that's why I focused a lot on Naranjo in this search, Mm because I I feel like a lot of what we know from the Enneagram is from him. So if it
3: wasn't originally a personality tool, what was it before that?
1: I think it was just a a system to uh, try to be a cohesive system to try to understand the world and, and how it works and how all of us fit together and again there's there's no books from uh, ichazo to be able to to back any of that up
3: oh right and we should clarify that because the whole reason that it's so vague is because for who knows how long it was all oral and and the and the whole principle behind you know what eventually became you know the modern enneagram the whole idea was that it was an oral tradition and that it was frequently taught in a way that Part of the teaching literally was this is to remain secret. You are to keep this knowledge secret. So between those two things, literally, there's no writing things down. (laughs)
2: I can't imagine if that's how it was presented to me today. Like, I have this revelatory information about you. You see the world in this way. It almost seems like psychic stuff, like to be because it is so specific and it is kind of nails down, you know, Vague elements of my personality, especially as someone who struggles with vagueness, to have such clarity. Man, I'm glad that it was presented in a much more like scholarly way, you know, like the 21st century. I don't know. I'm just trying to like picture what it would have been like to receive it back then.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Naranjo, you know, was was very interested in it for that reason. It was very esoteric. It was like this higher knowledge that he was attracted to. And uh, we have what we have because of him. So he went to Ichazo and learned the Enneagram. From him, we don't know exactly what he all learned, but that he said he learned it from him, uh, and then Naranjo began bringing his students to learn about it, and then he started teaching people like Helen Palmer and Father Robert Oakes and some of the, the names that we know. So Naranjo is the one that began teaching people from the, the states the Enneagram, and that's that's the reason why we have it today.
3: But even then, you know, did he did he continue the tradition of wanting certain? He wanted a certain level of secrecy about it.
1: Yep. You know, one of, the, one of the students was Father Robert Oakes, And then Father Oakes taught the Enneagram to the Jesuit School of Theology, uh, which is where Richard Rohr encountered it. And Rohr was told by his spiritual director, hey, do not let this get out because it needs to be handled with care and wisdom. And the, the average layperson cannot handle it. Um, but then it was after just years of Rohr being personally convicted by the Enneagram that he's like, I got to get this out. And so then that's why he began teaching on it publicly.
3: Yeah, and and Rizzo was in there somewhere as well, I think.
1: Yeah, so Don Rizzo was a a Jesuit, and uh, he started to teach the Enneagram to to Catholic communities, uh, and then co-founded the Enneagram Institute in 1997. So a lot of us are familiar with Rizzo and Hudson and the mm-hmm. wisdom of the Enneagram. So they, that kind of came out of that Jesuit Catholic tradition.
2: That was my first introduction to the Enneagram was like this manual of very, you know, condensed information, but it was written by two, you know, I guess it was written from a, a semi-spiritual perspective. It wasn't necessarily a gospel perspective, but okay, that's helpful.
1: And then Suzanne Stabil uh, was a student of uh, Richard Rohr. And so that kind of put her on a journey to, to learning the Enneagram, teaching the Enneagram, And then from what I've heard, Ian Cron was at one of our workshops and uh, came across the Enneagram from her. And then as you guys all know, they got together and wrote the widely popular primer, uh, The Road Back to You, uh, which really just blasted the Enneagram into evangelical and Protestant circles.
3: Yep. The Enneagram for me is so proud, though, because I knew about it before that book came out.
2: Well, it's funny because I was going to say, as like, I don't even know if it's a nine thing, but then I was like, and then here we are. Like, we did a podcast about it. (laughs) Like, after all of that.
3: (laughs) So (laughs) So, you're looking for the interconnectedness. And I'm like, I'm like, no, I knew about it before. It was cool. I
1: was going to say, Beth McCord and Jeff, her husband Jeff, who you guys know and who've had on, you know, they've been, they were learning the Enneagram like 15 years ago, uh, long before the Road Back to You. And now I'm just so impressed with them. They've taught thousands of people the Enneagram through a gospel lens. And I was just so encouraged to see the the influence that they're having teaching the, the Enneagram through a gospel lens.
3: Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of the broad strokes overview, but, but within like, there's a couple of details in here that are kind of concerning. Can you share with us maybe a couple of those more concerning details that have kind of come to light as the Enneagram has been developed?
1: Yeah. So in the video that I watched of the the local ministry um, couple talking about the Enneagram, one thing that they shared was that Naranjo claimed to receive the Enneagram types through a practice called automatic writing. And uh, I don't know anybody that practices that. And I was very unfamiliar with that. And so I had to kind of look up what that meant. And basically, automatic writing is a process whereby you relax your mind and sort of allow messages to flow through you from pen to paper. And they say that it can come from a subconscious level, like from within you, or you can practice automatic writing and be hearing from a divine source and write things down. Yeah. So when I heard that, I was very concerned. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then and on top of that, Echazo, I- Naranjo's teacher, uh, and this is something that Joe Carter pointed out in his article at the Gospel Coalition, but he said that Echazo said that he received knowledge from an archangel. Uh, And so again, that that was very troubling to me, and I had to figure out what that was all about.
3: Okay, so we would share concerns about that. Like if Sam came to me and said that she was, "Hey, I've got a new hobby called automatic writing," and an archangel comes to me. At
2: first, it's like I wrote a you know book or whatever, and
3: I did it without thinking. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah, Uh, but
3: I guess our question would just be, what do you what do you do with that? Like, what are Christians supposed to do with you know all of these things where? this narrative is essentially elements of the Enneagram were received through what Christians were would refer to as a cultic practice. What do we do with that?
1: Yeah. And for the record, you know, Naranjo never explicitly, which I think we get most of the Enneagram from him. I mean, he's the one that said he came up with the enneotypes. He never claimed to receive something from a divine source like Achazo did. But even still, it's it's troubling uh, I do think that, you know, again, Naranjo is not just this crazy occultist. He was trained in the United States. He was a brilliant psychologist, studied tremendously just personality types and things like that. Um, but even still, like it's, it's it begs the question, you know, we don't know how much of the Enneagram comes from occultist roots, um, but let's just ask the question. So, if some of the Enneagram's origins do have occultist roots... At some level, we don't know what level should this fact alone be enough for Christians to stop using the enneagram? Uh, that's that's, that's, a, good that's a good question. That's a good question. <laughs> so, throughout the Bible and church history, the church has used common grace knowledge obtained from all kinds of people in such fields as psychology, science, to advance the gospel. And I begin to do some more research on that. Like, how has the church dealt with people like Naranjo in, in the past? And even if you look in the scriptures, one of very common passage that people go to is Acts 17. And so here we see Paul quoting a Stoic philosopher. So he was well read um, by the Stoics. He uses an unknown idol to point people to Jesus. So we don't see Paul in the New Testament going around and smashing idols, but he, he makes use of it. He, he looks at this unknown God and says, here is the, the God I want to proclaim to you. Paul also used like the language of Plato, the languages of Stoic philosophers like Seneca to contextualize the gospel, to evangelize. And so Paul wasn't afraid to use non-Christian language and concepts to, to share the gospel. Yeah, John, in his first chapter of his gospel, describes Jesus as the Logos. Again, it was a, was a platonic term to connect the dots for esoteric thinkers in his day. And that's probably the most explicit example that, we're, that we've heard before of just John using a term like that to, to share the gospel. Yeah. And then as you look at church history, uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, combined the science and philosophy of Aristotle with uh, the truths of Christianity. And so he said, hey, look, Aristotle's a great philosopher. Um, he has truth, but not the whole truth. And then he reconciled Aristotle's views with biblical truth.
3: So we're getting into this idea that all truth is God's truth. And it's, you know, a little bit of what you're getting at makes me think of things like the magi were stargazers and yet somehow God still led them to Christ. I'm just thinking of like all of the problematic theology throughout christendom even you know forget the occult like you know you get luther becoming anti-semitic in the later years of his life uh you get i mean good grief i'm part of a southern baptist church why do we exist we wanted to own other human beings like so theological fidelity alone is kind of hard to come by because we're all blind in some particular area so even even among the church we don't have our ducks in a row
1: that's right I think Christians can have a knee-jerk reaction to things like the Enneagram, but we need to remember that Paul said to test everything. And when he said test everything, he means even the books on the, on the shelf of the Christian bookstore, literally test everything and hold fast to what is good. And so I feel like instead of having a knee-jerk reaction of saying, hey, just let's toss the Enneagram and throw it away. Let's have this gospel lens that we can see everything that we're learning uh, through a filter and to use it uh, for good, to use it to share the gospel and to use it to to build up the church.
3: Okay, so that's a little bit about, you know, the troubling origins of the Enneagram. I, I guess that leads, you know, directly to the second thing that we really want to talk about, which is, you know, just has to do with like spiritual language. And many people are concerned because it's, it's kind of, quote unquote, marketed as a spiritual tool. But doesn't the Enneagram contradict what the Bible teaches? And if so why in the world would Christians want to embrace this other spiritual tool? So can you kind of talk to us a little bit about that wrestling match between those things?
1: Yeah. Yeah. One thing that stood out to me was when Kevin DeYoung said, hey, the most troubling thing about the Enneagram is that it's been infused with spiritual significance. He said, hey, if the Enneagram were just another finder tool, it wouldn't be a big deal. But because people claim that it is a, a spiritual tool, I think we should pause and ask, okay, what spiritual language could be confusing or misleading for Christians? Uh, because you have people who aren't Christians writing the Enneagram. You have Christians from different camps and different theological backgrounds writing on it. And so, it'd be easy just to say, okay, if, if it's a spiritual tool, then any, whatever anybody's putting out there must be true. It must be Christian. And that's not the case.
3: Yeah, right, right, right. So, yeah. So, tell us, like, what, what spiritual language or doctrines within the Enneagram are troublesome?
1: Well, I just laid out a, sort of a framework, just basically contrasting a biblical worldview with a non-biblical Enneagram worldview. And I think one of the major things is just that from a biblical worldview, our starting point, our goal is to know God. Uh, if you look at right in Genesis, it's it's Adam and Eve being disconnected from God because of their sin. And so Tim Keller said that the most helpful self-knowledge that we can have are the strategies that we have for running and hiding from God. Um, but if you hear different authors talk about the Enneagram, it's it's almost as if the goal is to know yourself, to know your true self, to be on a journey to finding yourself. That's sort of, sort of the emphasis. But from a biblical worldview, our, our passion is to know God. You, you can see from an Enneagram worldview, their version of the fall and brokenness of the world is that we have fallen from our original essence. Uh, and the result is sort of the development of coping mechanisms such as the vices and passions. And if you come with the Christian perspective, you can see that, no, it's, we haven't fallen from our original essence. We, aren't, we weren't born basically good and pure. And, and then the problem is that we just need to shed the false self to uncover this, this essence underneath. And the gospel sh- story says that we've fallen from our original union with God and that we use coping mechanisms like idolatry. We run to God substitutes. Uh, Or we run to legalism, trying to use our good moral behavior to get back to God. But when we understand, when we bring the gospel into this, it's like, no, we haven't fallen from original essence. We've fallen from God. And he's inviting us to throw off these coping mechanisms and to find him.
2: Yeah. One of the things that I try to emphasize whenever I teach workshops is the Enneagram is a way to know yourself. That way you can better know your neighbors. And then if you know yourself, you can love yourself and therefore love your neighbors. So it's it's for the purpose of community. It may start with the self, but I think it always kind of mm-hmm. moves outward.
3: Yeah, for the purpose of relationship. Yeah,
2: for, yeah, and for the purpose of relationships.
3: Right, right. The other thing, too, is that it's a curious thing to me because there are, you know, specific communities within the Enneagram world that put a lot of emphasis on knowing yourself and that somehow that will lead to sort of a blissful sort of state. But the reality is the more that I come to know myself, the more that I see my desperate need. So for me, the more that we know ourselves, the more that we see our brokenness and our need for God. Mm-hmm. And so knowing ourselves is not a distraction. Mm-hmm. Or it's uh, not the end of the story. No, it's, it's really just, it's a gateway into seeing like, Man, God, here's the very specific ways I need your grace to show up.
1: Yeah, and and we can see that in Calvin. Like Calvin was very explicit at the very beginning of his institute saying we need to we need to go on a journey to finding ourselves, being aware of ourselves, and and in, in that it leads us to God. Augustine too. Augustine was not a, not afraid to go on a journey to understand himself, to be introspective, to look at his doubts. Yeah, and Augustine did that he went on a journey to find himself and that he and he said that that led him to god
3: okay so to summarize all of this what we're saying is our conviction is that if you want to use the enneagram that it's going to require discernment that you cannot just you know take everything in without sifting through and being thoughtful about it you have those who would teach it from a christian perspective you have those that would teach it from a spiritual perspective that's sort of non-specific that would lean more towards what we would classify as new age and then you also have those that are now the sort of a rising group that really just want to teach it more from a scientific and psychological perspective with very little emphasis into the spiritual side of things so i do think that it is very true that we we do need to consider but i think it's a very unwise and foolish decision to say that has some dangerous elements, so I'm not going to touch it at all. To that, we would challenge you and say, there's so much helpful and good truth within the Enneagram and that God can and has worked through the Enneagram. So we encourage you, don't reject the Enneagram. But consider these questions, wrestle with them, and then be discerning uh, as you continue to use it. And our hope is that this podcast has been a part of that discernment so that we can be a resource and a tool to help you with that.
1: Yeah. So at the the end of the day, uh, what I love about being a Christian who's using the Enneagram is that, you know, whereas the Enneagram can diagnose our core fears and needs, only the gospel can provide the treatment. Only in the gospel is is there hope that we will be united with God and our loved ones in the life to come. You know, only in the gospel will we find true meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. Only in the gospel do we receive supernatural power to change. And only in the gospel do we find someone who will never fail or forsake us. And that's the beautiful thing about being a Christian is that our ultimate hope is not grounded in a psychology, but it's it's grounded in an actual person that we get to know Jesus Christ. That's why I love bringing the gospel into this conversation is because the the gospel is so beautiful and completes the story of the Enneagram.
3: Well, pastor, you just took us to church. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Well, uh, here's what we're going to do. Stick around to the end of the episode, because we're going to tell you where you can get this free resource on should Christians use the Enneagram. But before we give you that resource, we will be playing Type Detective with Tyler Zach. Stay with us. On today's episode of the Enneacast, we're asking the question, should Christians use the Enneagram? It's a complicated question with complicated answers, but it's important that Christians learn how to engage hard and difficult topics like this one. If you'd like to explore another difficult and challenging topic thoughtfully, check out our other podcast, the Love Thy Neighborhood podcast. And specifically, check out episode number one, where the gospel meets racial reconciliation. Really, man, I love the black church. A lot of our
1: congregation are white, upper middle class hipsters.
2: Hey, we could, there's some gospel tunes. What if we did
1: some of those? There were African-Americans who were angry that we were talking about this.
2: Just, she didn't hear. She did not hear.
1: Reconciliation is at the heart of God.
2: It's so easy to judge
1: white people. Multi-ethnic worship is at the heart of God from the very beginning.
3: You can listen to the Love That Neighborhood podcast by listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts, or by heading over to lovethatneighborhood.org slash ltnpodcast. Again, lovethatneighborhood.org slash ltnpodcast. Hey, welcome back to the IndieCast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Sam Stevenson. And now it's time for Type Detective. Okay, our game today is called Type Detective. Uh, this is our version of two truths and a lie. Here's how it works. All three of us are going to play. When it's your turn, you will share three facts about yourself, but... One of them is a lie. Everyone else gets to ask two clarifying questions each about any of the facts shared. And after that, you're gonna have to guess which one you think is the lie. Okay. Anyone who guesses correctly gets a point. If on your turn, no one guesses your lie, then you get a point. Uh, So we're each gonna take a turn. So there's gonna be three rounds. Whoever has the most points at the end wins. Are you both ready? I'm ready. ready. All right. Uh, So, Sam, ladies first.
2: Okay. So, I made my debut tap dancing debut. (laughs) um, That's quite the debut. It's a double debut. (laughs) Yeah, quite the debut. Uh, At the mall, I once met John O'Hurley at Rockefeller Center, and I didn't have my ears pierced until I was 20 years old. 20 years old? Mm -hmm. So, those are my three facts. Am I allowed to ask who John O'Hurley is? Um. He hosts the dog show every year. I don't he was know. also on Dancing with the Stars. He was also on something before that <laughs> <laughs> that made him more famous. That, that's who he is. <laughs> yeah. I can Google him really quickly, but I met him at Rockefeller Center.
3: Okay. Okay. So, Tyler, so I'll let you go first. You can ask her two questions about her so-called truths.
2: Yes.
1: Which mall did you make your debut tap dancing at?
2: Yeah, um, so I'm from a smaller town outside of Louisville, and it was at the Town Mall.
3: It's literally was just called the Town Mall? It's called
2: Town Mall, T-O-W-N-E, with an oh, E on the end. come
3: on, small town Kentucky. I know. You can do better. It's
2: not a great mall. <laughs> I wish it was like Mall of America or something. But the stage is right outside of American Eagle and next to the food court. Oh, that's very specific.
1: And how many piercings did you get when you were 20?
2: Um, Just the one in each year.
3: Okay, uh, here's my question. Uh, how long ago did you meet this celebrity in Manhattan?
2: It was 2011.
3: 2011, yeah. And what was he wearing? A suit. Just a suit. Mm-hmm. I th- I think I know the lie.
1: Okay. Tyler, why don't you go <laughs> first? I think the ears pierced until 20. That one's the lie.
3: Okay. I'm gonna go with uh, your celebrity encounter instead.
2: Y'all are both wrong. What? <laughs> I didn't make my top dancing debut at the mall. I made it at the recital. <laughs> oh my gosh, of course. You yeah.
3: Oh. I didn't I don't know why I didn't think longer about the fact that it was the mall. Who makes a <laughs> debut at the mall? Yeah.
2: So I'm I'm trying to pull up a picture of me getting my ears pierced at age 20 because I was terrified of needles like and my friends were like, you're an adult, you need to get your ears pierced. So I got my ears pierced at age 20 and I saw slash met John O'Hurley at the basement of Rockefeller Center whenever I was on an NBC Studios tour whenever I was up in New York to dance to the Macy's Day Parade whenever I was in high school. So it was 2011, my senior year.
3: Well, Samantha Stevenson.
2: I wasn't lying about those things. And there is a stage at the town mall that I described perfectly to you guys. I just never tap danced on it.
1: That was good. Good That's crazy. Yeah, good,
3: Good job. So Sam has a point then.
2: I do have a point. Uh, Well, that did not go well. For what it's worth, I'm very bad at guessing. So I'm not going to do well these next two rounds. (laughs) Ah, We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Okay, Tyler, your turn.
1: All right. Here are my three. I have a black belt. Uh, I used to be a music DJ. And I used to be a worship leader.
2: Can I have a pre-question? That's not one of my questions. Oh my gosh. <laughs> if you
3: try to nine this. Uh, no, no, no,
2: no. Are you saying that <laughs> you yeah. have a black belt in karate or just you own a black belt? <laughs> <laughs> is that where, we, is that where we get tricked up? It's a yeah. clarifying question. Okay. So that will count as one of my questions. No, I think that's yeah. a fair question.
1: <laughs> that's a fair question. That's just a. <laughs> okay. I have a black belt in taekwondo.
2: Okay. And my next question is: From what period of time in your life were you a DJ?
1: From twenty-five to thirty years old.
3: Okay. What was the station that you DJed for?
1: It was I was a wedding DJ.
3: Okay. And uh, yeah, so you said that you were a worship leader. What was your favorite tuning for your guitar?
1: <laughs> That's a good question. Uh... <laughs> Boom! <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and cut to the chase and say, that's a lie.
2: That was going to be my guess, too, because it so obviously could be true.
3: Yeah, because it, and I was also thinking he's a 3 wing four, the 4 and I'm like, oh, maybe. But I was like, let's just ask him a <laughs> very question.
1: specific question. You yeah. <laughs> got him. I am so impressed. That yeah. was a Phenomenal question.
2: I could have asked what your favorite song was, and you probably could have come up with like a decent answer. But favorite tuning is like a very nuanced thank only you, musicians know you. what <laughs> to say. I would have said C or G. Yeah, yeah. Which would have not been,
1: an, would have an, not, an, been that's helpful. not a real answer <laughs> yeah. either. Yeah, so. yeah. I was I was thinking about it and I was like, yeah, well, I, okay, I know some chords, uh, but I was like, you got me. I was there's no way I was getting out of that.
3: Well, here's what I thought. I was like, I'm here, I thought. If it's a lie, he could still say, uh, well, actually, I play the piano, or I play keys, and then the question is a mute question. Yeah. It's a bad question. But if yep. it's a guitar, then I was like, I might be able to pin him, and I yeah,
2: gotcha. got him. Uh, Do I get a point? Because so that's what I was going to guess.
3: Yes. Sam and I both get a point. Yes. Okay. Here are my three, and I have chosen, so I, as an Enneagram 4, I have chosen three examples from my life that are my anti-four examples. Oh. So unlike my traditional examples uh, that are more about my uniqueness or eccentricities, these three are not. So, number one, I won a ballroom dancing contest. Number two, I led a golf scramble in which I also had to dress in full golf apparel. And number three, I was a secret shopper for a major chain of banks.
2: What? I know that I think the golf scramble one is true because I think I've heard that story. Um, but I'm torn between the others. Uh, what song did you ballroom dance to?
3: Oh, I don't.
2: Oh, you don't remember? Because <laughs> it's a lie? <laughs>
3: no, it's just. It wasn't that kind of thing. It wasn't like a solo performance. It was like
2: a round robin.
3: Yeah, it was like everybody was on the floor. So I don't really remember because the, by and large, ballroom dancing, the moves are going to be the same. So it's as long as the tempo and the mood is correct, it's it's not.
2: It's not like you danced a Katy it, didn't Perry. Do, yeah, it wasn't <laughs> like we
3: did the dirty dancing thing. You know, I didn't have to like lift her above my head
1: or something. Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, Tyler, you go, and I'll think of my second one. Uh, how
1: much money did you get paid for secret shopping?
3: Yeah, I was paid, uh, I think it was $22 per, per visit, per site visit.
1: Okay. And uh, what brand of golf clubs uh, did you use in the golf scramble?
3: Well, I didn't play. I didn't actually play. I, I only hosted it, and I had to, yeah, dress the part. Gotcha. Yeah. Thank
1: you. That's helpful.
2: Okay. I have my second question. What brand of banks did you work for?
3: Uh, commerce.
2: That's not a real bank.
3: In the northeastern uh, part of the United States, that is a definite bank.
2: <laughs> okay, I think the ballroom dancing one is a lie.
1: Uh, I think the secret shopper for a major bank is a lie.
3: One of you is correct. So here's the deal the golf scramble is true. Yep. I did lead a golf scramble as a fundraising event, and I did have to wear all golf apparel. And part of my soul died and has never come back since. It was terrible. (laughs) Uh, The other truth, I was a secret shopper for a major chain of banks. (laughs) And I eventually even figured out that they would let me make calls instead of visiting in person. And I convinced the bank into allowing me to do all phone calls, no site visits, so I could do all my calls in one day and make some...
2: Major Ching-ching.
3: money. Yeah. I did do ballroom dancing. I did compete in a competition. I did not win.
2: <laughs> I the dancing thing I was thrown off with because I knew that you enjoy dancing.
3: I am not a good dancer, but when I was in high school I did do a fair amount of ballroom dancing and swing dancing.
2: So what you're saying is I have three points. I unfortunately
3: <laughs> did just <laughs> confirm that. Samantha Stevenson, you are the winner of Type yes, Detective. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Good job. Thank you. Congrats. All right. And now it is time for listener questions.
2: Okay, this question comes from A underscore Garish. They ask, one critique I hear a lot is that the Enneagram does too much, quote, navel gazing. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think we answered it uh, earlier. And, and, you know, Does the Enneagram just help me to, to know myself, focus on myself? But I think what we've said is, no, it doesn't have to stop there, but it can continue to go. Just like what Augustine did. He went on a, in, a path of introspection to understand how he was running and hiding from God, and, and it led him to God. And I think we can use the Enneagram, the, the qualities in, uh, of each type to show how the Imago Dei shines through us. So it can actually give us an appreciation and a worship of God for, for uniquely displaying His his qualities through each and every type.
3: I'd be curious, too, to know, I hear this complaint. I've heard this before, this concern, but I've yet to actually ever meet anybody in real life that does this. I feel like this is more like a... I mean, I'm I'm not trying to dismiss this question, but it does feel like a boogeyman question. It doesn't feel like people really actually like, like I used to be really other focused. Then I got into the Enneagram and now I'm all about myself. Like that just, I've not, I've not come across that.
1: Yeah. Well, to be fair, actually, you know, there's a lot of Instagram accounts and, and people out there that just continue to talk about ourselves. Uh, so I guess in that sense, it could be just continually thinking about ourselves. So I think there might be some validity there.
3: Yeah, I think I think like um, I don't know how to say it, except that I think that that stuff, that disposition is not about the Enneagram. That disposition. I mean, good grief in America and social media, even like if it wasn't the Enneagram, those same people would have figured out other ways to still talk about themselves. So I don't think it's an Enneagram issue. It's a heart and, you know, character issue. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I just feel like the Enneagram kind of gets to be the scapegoat when it's, it's not really the source problem.
1: Yeah. Or other personality tests, too. Like Myers-Briggs, yeah. right. any of those. Right.
2: Okay, this question comes from Ari underscore Hike. What are signs that we're using the Enneagram to replace faith?
1: It's kind of yeah, general. I wish she could be more uh, specific, like replace faith. I'm trying to think of what she might or he might mean.
3: Well, I, I think of the I think of the graph that you developed. You know, I think that you know when the enneagram is like leading us, it's it's more about self actualization. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more about my own revelation and my own comfort, my own growth. It's not leading me towards other people. It's not leading me towards God. It's not leading me towards Jesus. The Holy Spirit is not necessary.
2: Yeah. Um.
3: You know, that's that's when it should be be concerning.
2: Yeah, I think too. Like, if you're using the enneagram and looking at like all of the tools that are held within it, like if I'm trying to grow in the best version of myself, and that's still very self focused, but if I'm trying to legitimately improve, if I'm not careful. I can use the Enneagram to do that instead of relying on Jesus or the Holy Spirit to do that. And so I can try to grow the virtue of exertion or grow the virtue of generosity or hospitality or whatever it might be. And without actually trying to do that with the fruit of the Spirit or with the Holy Spirit's help. So I can say, like, let me just try to channel my inner three right now and become really productive or channel my inner four and become really creative, like, and try to use the tool to the end of itself and try to get kind of lost in that circle of, of the different types?
1: You know, secular philosopher, uh, Luke Ferry, he says, basically, every worldview has a doctrine of salvation. And so, yeah, the Enneagram in and of itself has uh, a doctrine of salvation, it promises things uh, that you're going to be set free from your ego, you know, and your, your personality to find your, your true self. And there's like, this real benefit there, like you can actually learn about yourself. It's a great diagnostic tool. So there's some like great benefits to it. um, And that's why people are enjoying it so much. But I feel like just the gospel completes a better story. Like the Enneagram can't uh, save you from death.
3: But I do think that there is a growing movement of people that do regard the Enneagram at almost a religious level that it, Mm. it provides them such clarity and personal fulfillment That that they're content to stop at the enneagram, as opposed to we as Christians would say the enneagram is a signpost, you know, that's that's designed to lead us back to Jesus. And so if we stop at the sign itself, you've definitely not arrived at the destination. And so I would just say that uh, that any of our use of the enneagram should always be leading us into a greater and deeper intimacy with God and an awareness of who He is. And, a spe- and, and an understanding of the specific way that he relates to us and how we relate to other people. The Enneagram for us as Christians should be helping us to love God and love other people as we love ourselves better. If it's not doing that, then uh, then then it's time to back up and ask some questions. Amen. Well, Tyler, thanks so much, man. This has been great.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I just really appreciate you two and the work that you're doing. You're a phenomenal team. So, yeah, appreciate you guys, and hopefully we can— um, Stay connected.
3: Well, thanks to our special guest today, Tyler Zack. If you want to read his full resource, Should Christians Use the Enneagram? head over to gospelforenneagram.com. There you can find that along with info on his 40 day devotionals. Again, that's gospelforenneagram.com. As always, thank you to Crosspoint Ministry who trained Sam and I in the Enneagram. To learn more about Crosspoint, visit crosspointministry.com.
2: Our show is a production of Love Thy Neighborhood. Love Thy Neighborhood provides social action internships supported by Christian community for young adults ages 18 to 30. Come serve with us for a summer or a year. Grow in your faith and life skills. Learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org.
3: Today's episode was produced by myself, Sam Stevenson, and Rachel Zabo. Engineering and editing by the Rachel Zabo. Music for today's episode comes from Murphy DX. I'm Sam Stevenson. And I'm Jesse Eubanks. Remember, the eye can see everything but itself. Find people to journey with you because you were created for community.